Dr. Natalie Collins has always loved sport and exercise. It was in high school that science and physical education came together to form her passion for the human side of biology, evolving into a career in physiotherapy. These days, Natalie specializes in sports physiotherapy and research into knee pain across the lifespan. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to speak to you today because I think your area of science and research is very interesting for me personally because I'm an avid runner and you, of course, are in physiotherapy. So how do you explain to your children or your family what your job is in a nutshell? In a nutshell. So I am a teaching and research academic. I teach physiotherapy students across all of our programs. So the students who are going in to actually train to become physiotherapists, but also the physiotherapists who are coming back to specialise in a particular area like sports physiotherapy. The research part of my job is looking more at knee pain across the lifespan and in particular kneecap pain, which sounds very niche and is, but affects a lot of people, about 25% of the population. And so what I look at is how we can better understand the condition across the lifespan, how we can target treatments to better address the condition across the lifespan and prevent some of those long-term complications or sequelae that we think occur. And then also understand the relationship between kneecap pain early in life and later in life so that we can possibly actually change that trajectory altogether. So one of the things that we think is that kneecap pain in adolescence, or we know we have evidence that that persists into adulthood, but there's some evidence that that then in some people leads to kneecap osteoarthritis or arthritis. And that has huge implications for the need for surgery, ongoing pain and disability. If we can understand that trajectory, intervene it at an early stage with treatments that we know work, we could actually potentially change that whole continuum of pain across the lifespan that people have to live with. Have you always been a very active person and drawn to sports and that sort of thing? Yeah, most definitely. It was always, I think that's what drew me to a career in physiotherapy in the first place. The fact that I had a real interest in not just team sport, but also being active in general and could see a career path that tapped into that, but also my fascination around how the body works and how we can help people to be as active and participate in whatever they need to throughout their life. For some people, their interest in science was the, the first time they were interested in science was sort of a light bulb moment, realising that that's what they wanted to do with their life. Whereas for other people, it was sort of a gradual realisation that the biological world, for example, fascinated them. What was your experience being drawn to science and in particular your area of research? I definitely didn't have the light bulb moment. In primary school, I don't really recall <laughs> to learning much about the body, but certainly biology in high school. I think I just always wanted to be a physio and to to do physio, you had to do science in high school. And I guess that tapped into then when I sort of went through the, the different subjects at high school, particularly biology and, and particularly the human side of biology was what I really enjoyed as part of that. And then also what we learnt from a science perspective in the physical education subjects that I did, that kind of really, I think, consolidated that that's primarily where I wanted my career to go. So what did you then select for your undergraduate degree? Where did you go? Tell me a little bit more about that stage of your career. I was one of those people who didn't quite get into physiotherapy first go round. So I did a year of human movement studies here at UQ 
and then used that to upgrade into a Bachelor of Physio here, which was a, a good thing, I think. I am the first person in my family to go to university oh, wow. and finish university. So I had no idea what I was doing, no idea of the culture or the environment. And having that year to, to kind of navigate my way was, I think, really useful. Did you find your family understood what you were trying to do or did they find it difficult to understand why you were following this as a career? They've always been very supportive of of anything that I've wanted to do. My recollection of that period is that it was never a question that I wouldn't go to university, like it was just part of the path, despite the fact that nobody in my family had done that before. And did you want to then go into clinical practice? Was that your long-term plan? Yeah, so my goal was always to be a sports physio, I guess tapping into my interest in physical activity and exercise and sport. So when I finished my undergrad and I did an honours project as part of my, it's built into our undergrad degree in physio, and I'd never really considered research as a part of my career up until then. I just thought I would finish, I would be a physio, I'd work for a while, I'd come back and do a sports master's and then work in that environment forever. But the honours component of my degree really opened up research as not just a really interesting thing where I could kind of explore my curiosity a little bit more, but also actually have a really tangible impact on the field of physiotherapy and and sports injuries in general. And what was your honours topic? So I looked at treatment of subacute ankle sprain. So subacute is that period sort of between six to 12 weeks after injury. I looked at the immediate effect of a particular manual therapy treatment on that. It's actually, I think, one of my most highly cited papers still and found some really interesting things around the fact that we can change how the joint moves in that phase. The challenges of doing that, I think I I basically lived at UQ during that Mm. period, trying to find enough people who fit that very niche eligibility criteria was a real challenge. I think that resonates with a lot of people. I always tell my students that honours is probably one of the hardest but most rewarding experiences of your life um, because it's such a steep learning curve. It is. And as part of physio, we do it embedded in our fourth year of clinical placement. So back then it was two four-week blocks to do the project and then another four-week holiday block where I continued my project then. So we do this fairly large project in a very consolidated period of time and it's it's a real challenge. So after all that you decided sign me up for more I want to do a PhD. Yeah so I went into a new grad rotation position through a big hospital in Newcastle and I guess at the end of that I was kind of thinking I really enjoy the hospital environment but it's not really where I want to go and if I did stay there I think for myself I would need to go down the medicine path to have some autonomy because physios in the hospital system are very much under the direction of the medical staff to a degree. So at the end of my new grad year, my honours supervisor had actually just got a big NHMRC project grant. I saw him at a conference and he said, do you want to do a PhD? And I didn't even think about it. I just went, yep, cool. That was exactly the topic I would have chosen, exactly what I was interested in. And he was like, do you want to go away and think about it? Like, nope, I'll just, no, that's, that's. Efficient decisions. That's the way to roll. (laughs) And it turned out to be the, it's a, I mean, PhDs are challenging anyway, aren't they? It was a really big challenge, the project that I did, but ultimately the best thing I could have done for where my career has ended up. So what was so challenging about the project? Was it the research topic? Was it the challenges just in general of a PhD? 
It's probably a combination of everything. So it was a big clinical trial and we recruited 176 people with a particular type of knee pain, which is the most common type of knee pain in the community. And yet when you try and find those people for a study, they all kind of run away and hide in the in the forest. So you were relatively young when you did all of this. Now, I know from talking to colleagues that sometimes when people are young or even just when they look young, they find it very, very hard for people to listen to them in positions of authority, to implement change. Did you come across any of those challenges? So I guess I came into a group where some of the PhD students that I worked alongside had quite a number of years of clinical experience in terms of not just dealing with patients, but also going through that process of learning clinical reasoning and also navigating how to manage relationships with with different people, not just patients and participants, but also people in the in the broader team. Mm. As a fairly new graduate at that stage, and as a, as quite an introverted person, I really had to figure out quite quickly how to how to find my way through that in a way that was authentic to me, but was still effective in what I was trying to achieve. So this was a 12 month clinical trial. So we were getting people to sign up for 12 months of their life. It's a big commitment. It is. And part of that is being engaging and um, understanding of their situation and how this study might fit into their life or how it might not while still having the primary goal in, in my head that, that I actually just needed to get as many people as I could as quick as I could because we're on a timeline and a budget and the study just needed to get done. Mm. And so it was really, it was a very steep learning curve and it was a really interesting time around trying to figure out where I fit in that priority. I went into it thinking, well, first of all, not really understanding how PhD worked in terms of time commitment and and energy levels and all the other things you need to do. And so I went in thinking that I would try my best to kind of fit into a an average workday, so a nine to five window, so that I'd have time to rest, recover. It very quickly became apparent from more senior people around me that that was not the model at the time, but also that that didn't fit with the type of study that I was doing, Mm. that massive trial and the timeline and the pressures of having to recruit that many people. For a number of years, I just kind of hung in there and got it done. I think we've all gone through periods like that. Like as much as we all want to embrace work-life balances, there is a reality that there are just going to be some periods of your life where you have to work really, really hard. How did you manage to sort of keep yourself motivated and sane and were you able to find any little glimpses of things that sort of outside of science that kept you going? One of the biggest passions I have is travel. And so I guess I've used that throughout my career as a way to have something to look forward to. Mm. So mm. as long as I've got something planned, a trip planned, it doesn't matter where it is or what it involves, but that's the carrot, right? Mm. The, mm. What I think is really interesting is that when I kind of look back on my career and my decision as to where my career was going to go I was very much okay I'm going to be a physio 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 and then I had this period where I really enjoyed art and so I think okay maybe I'm going to go down a creative career pathway but then came back to physio fairly quickly (laughs) and what's really interesting to me is then the realization that science and creativity are not mutually exclusive Mm. and so 
I've kind of built creativity into my career, but also explored the hands-on arty creative side of things in what I do when I have time outside of work. But at the same time, the work itself is very motivating to me. So finding the answer to the problem, I'm pretty stubborn and I don't give up easily. And once I've committed to something, I will do everything I can to see it through. And I guess coming from a clinical background, the thing that I find the most fascinating and important about being a clinician scientist is you get that very direct translation. So Mm. I can take my findings directly into uh, clinical consultations with my patients and say, look, this is what we found. Would you be okay with trying this? But it also works the other way as well. So what I see in the clinic, what works, what doesn't, then also informs the research questions that we can ask and the studies that we can do. Mm. Talking to one of my friends who's a clinician scientist, she said her motivation for becoming a clinician scientist was that there was things in the clinic that patients were asking her that she couldn't answer. And so she sort of said, well, I'm going to go away and answer that to inform my clinical care. That's perfect. I think particularly in physio, there are so many things that we don't know or we don't have a good answer for, particularly around knee pain. We have some really good evidence for for the type of knee pain that I look at, but One of the big limitations of that is the burden goes back onto the patient. For example, exercise is the thing that we know works best, but exercise for it to work, you've actually got to do it. Mm. And people have so much going on in their lives that finding an exercise program that matches that, that they can actually complete and get some benefit from is actually really tricky. And so that's one of the big focuses of what I look at is how do we find treatments that are simple and easy for people to incorporate into their lives. And so what's been the most effective treatment that you've found to date? So a lot of my work focuses on footwear interventions. Most people, most days, have to wear shoes, particularly adolescents. So the type of knee pain I look at affects people from adolescence all the way up to older adulthood. And what we've been able to show is that just simply putting something in your shoe, so what's called a foot orthosis or a shoe insert, can have a big enough impact on your pain to help you, well, not only reduce the amount of pain that you're feeling, but also help you to go about your daily function. We're also now looking at the footwear itself, whether there's specific features of the shoe that can have that therapeutic effect as you go about your daily activities. So then you don't have to think about, oh, gee, didn't do my exercises today. A treatment that is actually feasible for people to take up. Yeah, particularly adolescents. So they're in school shoes mm. what, six, eight hours a day. They're in their sports shoes. They tend to be more likely to wear closed-in shoes during their casual time as well. And so that sets them up quite beautifully for a, um, for a footwear intervention. You did your PhD, assuming because you continued in this field, you enjoyed it. What was next? How did you know what you wanted to go on and do? I think what became very apparent to me is that I I really like to learn. I, I really want to find out the answers to things and I really enjoy the process of research. So it was a bit of a no-brainer that research would be a big part of my career going forward from there. I got a an NHMRC postdoc to go down to Melbourne, to the University of Melbourne, and I worked in a biomechanical engineering group and lab, which was completely different to what I'd done during my PhD. And that was where I was able to look at more the mechanisms of how shoe inserts might actually have their their clinical effect, but also start to explore how or what the relationship is between knee pain that we see early on in life and so in adolescence, for example, and then knee pain or knee osteoarthritis in later life. 
Did you find it difficult sort of traversing fields like that, going from clinical to engineering, essentially? It wasn't difficult to learn the the technical skills involved. I think it was more the theory and the understanding of how data is collected and what it means. And then particularly being in an engineering group, all of the equations. So I would sit there in our group meetings every week and go, okay, yeah, I'm understanding, I'm understanding. And then someone would flash up an equation and I'd just be like, okay, no, I'm out. That's, <laughs> that's beyond my capacity. But the goal is to understand sort of 75% and then that's the achievement. Generally. But I think what's really important and why the sort of multidisciplinary collaboration really is crucial to what we do is that level of biomechanical investigation is really important to be able to figure out how people move and how we can better target treatments to them. But then the reverse is also true. So having clinicians embedded in more science-based laboratories like this mechanical engineering group, they get a bit more of an understanding of the real world impact. Mm. So not just what the problems are out there from a real world perspective, but also what their findings might mean when we actually go and treat people or design new interventions for particular populations. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's the benefit of interdisciplinary work that we see across all disciplines. You know, you pick up so much when you step outside of your discipline. It's challenging, but very beneficial. To finish up today, I would like to just ask you a sort of broader question as a woman in science. What can we do as women in science to encourage each other and our peers and those who we are mentoring? That is really the fundamental question. And I think we're at a we're at a real turning point in academic culture and, and science culture in general. Two sort of things to talk about. The first is taking the competition out of things and really fostering a more collaborative, supportive community. Clearly, there's parts of academia and science that are competitive. So when you apply for funding, for example, but even that we should be trying to work together more we should be trying to be inclusive in the projects that we're designing so can I bring someone onto this grant or this paper or this project because it addresses a gap in their CV that they might need to be successful at getting funding can we actually join two reasonably successful groups or researchers to come up with something even better and not just from an academic track record success but also for impact for the patient or the end user at the end of the day The other thing I think we need to be more mindful of is people's personal circumstances. So we are people, we're not not just scientists, we have lots of other things going on in our lives. And for women in particular, women of childbearing age in particular, recognising that it's not just the postpartum period when you've got the child to look after and, and recover from, but it's also there's so many people who have the very long journey to having children in the first place, which can really impact their work, their physical health, their mental health. And having more systemic processes in place to recognise and support that, I think, would be a real benefit. I think those are beautiful words to end on. Thank you so much, Natalie, for your time and your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Women in Science. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marlous Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed. Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>